I was just reading in the week, uh, the psalm for the day, and I think it was Wednesday maybe, and it was Psalm 127, which is a really great psalm, and it says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, build in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, those who guard, those who take guard, keep watch in vain. This is the sort of beginning of the psalm, and it basically says that the people of God, as they sort of go up to Jerusalem, they're singing this psalm, and they're saying, look, what matters in this city... What matters in Jerusalem, that's, that's the city they're thinking about, is that God is right at the heart of it, building the city. And then unless he's building the city, the, the work of building it is useless. It's, it's a waste of effort. It's a waste of energy. And as I was sitting down this Wednesday morning, I think it was, reading that psalm, I was just reminded again of what it is that we are here to do. We're here to see a church established in this part of the city, which is a blessing, not just to those of us who are part of it, but those who would never even consider being a part of this church or any other church. We're here for the benefit of others. And unless God is right at the heart of everything we do, unless God is at the foundations, and unless we're building good foundations, foundations that go deep down into God, then this whole effort, this whole, all the energy, all the money, all the time that we've already expended and all that we will continue to expend into the future is a waste. Now we've been in a series for the last few weeks looking at foundations. And we've been saying that those foundations that we're building and hopefully that God is building begin with the presence of God. He, His presence is the foundation to this church and then we said well how how do we build good foundations into his presence and we looked at worship how how we worship well and last week we looked at how we can become a people who dwell who remain who are anchored who are connected to God in everyday life now as I was thinking about what we're going to talk about this week just last week I actually heard a story of a group of people who have an extraordinary thing in common a this group of people live in a place called Sardinia. Has anybody been to Sardinia? I believe it's an island, am I right? A few people have. Is it an island? It's off Italy, isn't it? It's near Italy. It is in Italy. Or it's an... Anyway, it's to do with Italy. Now, the interesting thing about Sardinia, I'm obviously not very well-travelled, folks. The interest, interesting thing about Sardinia, it, it, is, it is home to seven out of the 70 people in the world known to be over 110 years of age. It's an, extra, it's an extraordinary fact that 10% of the people who are over 110 live in Sardinia. It's, it's amazing. And there's lots and lots of, of reasons why this might be true. And scientists have looked through, they've tried to figure out what, what are the reasons that might make Sardinians live so long. By the way, 371 Sardinians, are, not sardines, Sardinians are over 100. 20, that's 22 for every 100,000 people. So scientists look at them, and some of them say, well, it's to do with their genetic heritage. Other people say it's their frugal Mediterranean diet. Apparently they eat a lot of minestrone over there, folks. You know what's for lunch today. Or maybe it's their hardy lifestyle. They live, uh, it's a peripatetic lifestyle. They're on the feet a lot. Lots of them are shepherds. Maybe it's that kind of thing. Well, the person I heard talking about it described something different that was going on. He said this, another key factor was esteem. Older Sardinians live with their families and are respected as the living members, memories sorry, of their communities. One lady, lady, Claudia Melis, her daughter, she lives with her, uh, 
sorry, her daughter, Marta, who's 79, she lives with her mother. She said, we're a tight family. Everyone should be like this. There's one person, Consolata, in this community who has 14 children, nine of whom are still alive, 24 grandchildren, 25 great-grandchildren, three great-great-grandchildren, and she still cooks and feeds, cooks for and feeds her goats. Okay, so this is a, a community. There you go, just a little bit of detail for you. I don't think she cooks her goats. Um, she may do that as well. This community, right at the heart of, of the success, if you like, the longevity of this community is this deep sense of belonging and family. These people get what it is to do life together. You could say, in other words, beyond the genetic stuff, beyond the minestrone, there's something else going on at the heart of this community. And it's that there is a community where people are valued. In other words, it is a community of love. That's what we want to talk about this morning. And actually, when we look at the Christian faith, the Christian faith at its core, at its heart, is a journey into love. A journey of love, a journey into love. And that's what Jesus says here, doesn't he? In verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. The Christian faith is a journey into love. It's a journey into experiencing the love that the Father, Father God and the Son, Jesus, share. It's a journey into an eternal love between the Father God and the Son, Jesus. That's the journey of the Christian faith. You can look at all the different elements of the Christian faith. If we're going to boil it down. I think what Jesus is saying to us today is that it's a simple thing. It's a journey into an experience of loving and being loved. Love, therefore, is the foundation of the church. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. And we could say then, to simplify it, that there, is two things, there are two things going on here. Firstly, an invitation into love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. An invitation. Invitation to experience the love that is at the heart of God. And secondly, an instruction, even a command. Now remain in my love. So last week we talked about what it means to remain and we said that to remain is to be connected, to be anchored, to dwell, to abide and that's what each of us was created for. But the question we didn't quite answer is what does that actually and practically look like for us day in and day out? And that's the question I want to get at today. How do we, in other words, how do we remain? How do we stay connected? If you read on with me, Verse 10, Jesus says this, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So the answer's clear. If we want to be people who remain in, in the love of God, if we want to be people who experience God's love, and Jesus is clear, and it just simply means this, keep his commands. Great, Jesus. Which ones? Like, you, you know, are we going to panic ourselves and read through every verse of the Gospels and try and figure out exactly which commands Jesus wants us to keep? Is that what we have to do if we're going to remain in his love? Well, thankfully not. Jesus knows that we're simple people. He knows that his disciples are simple people and he boils it down. He makes it really, really simple. Look at this. My command is this. Here's the command. This is what Jesus is asking of us. Love each other as I've loved you. So freaking simple, isn't it? So simple, guys. 
I want to say it's simple. I don't mean it's easy. You can exhaust, you will exhaust the rest of your life. You can spend the rest of your life figuring out what it means to do that very, very simple thing. Love each other as I have loved you. It's simple. It's not complicated. How, you have no idea how complicated we make it. You have no idea how complicated I make the Christian faith. You know, and it's, and it's this and it's that and it's the other and there's different levels and it's, oh, I better go to this thing and I better do that thing. And it's all so complicated. But Jesus is saying, look, guys, this is super, super simple. It's so simple that the foundations of this faith, the foundations of everything we are, everything we're supposed to be, it's so simple. It's just love. I just want you to, I just want you to love, I just want you to love each other. Jesus is sort of, he's just boiling it down. So I really don't care about the other stuff so much. I, I, just, I just want you to be a community that's defined and described and known for your love. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Church, that's, that's what we've got to aim for. That's what we want. That's what Amy and I dream of. That's what we dream of for ourselves. That's what we dream of Trinity Church being known for. You know, we may or may not be known for the hanging pendant lights and the, the vaguely hipster bearded clergy and the <laughs> above average coffee, I think you'll agree. Plasma screens, folks, and it's great worship and average preaching and whatever it is, right? We may or may not be known for these things. I don't care. As long as we're known for the right things, the right thing, and the right thing, Jesus says, is to be known for love. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. It's so simple. Love one another. But there's a second part, right? It's not just love one another. Jesus doesn't just say, love one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you. You see, if we're just going to make this about our own efforts, our own attempts to outdo each other in love, and we haven't got that second piece, as I have loved you, it will collapse pretty quickly. You know, to be a community that, that loves one another well, we have to be a community that understands first and foremost, we are loved by God. Love each other as I've loved you. So what does that mean? Okay, I want to spend the next 10 minutes asking that question. What does that mean? Because that's got to be the most important thing, doesn't it? We've got to understand what it means to, how is it exactly that Jesus loved them? How is it he's lo he loved the disciples he's talking to right now? And how is it exactly that he loves us? Well, the first thing I want to draw to your attention is in verse 16. Jesus says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give. You did not choose me, I chose you. The first thing that Jesus has done to demonstrate his love to these disciples and the first thing that Jesus has done to demonstrate his love to you and I, whether or not you're his disciples, is to choose you know, uh, right at the heart of love is choice, isn't it? You know, whether this is a, a romantic relationship you, you describe or a friendship, relationship of a, a parent 
to a child, there's always an element of choice in love. And what Jesus has done with his disciples, if we had time, we'd go back and look at it in John chapter, chapter 2 and 3. We'd see him call his disciples. And it, and it really is what's amazing about this is Jesus' is choice. He is free to choose or not to choose, and he chooses these disciples. It's a free choice. Right at the heart of Jesus' love is this choice. And he chooses them even in the midst of the fact that he knows them. Already he's got a good read on them. We see that Nathaniel, this guy, you can read it in your own time, but he's under the fig tree. And Jesus just starts, we would say, um, when we were in the States, we'd say reading his mail. Jesus starts just telling him what he's like. Jesus just starts, I guess we'd use the word in the church, prophesying. In other words, he's telling him what he's like. He's telling Nathaniel what he's like. And Nathaniel's like, whoa, how do you know me? And in spite of the fact, not just because of the fact, but in spite of the fact Jesus knows him, he chooses him. And what's amazing about it, he doesn't just choose him once, he goes on choosing him. Every one of the disciples Jesus chooses lets him down. And he goes on choosing them. He needs to forgive them time and time again, and he does, and he goes on choosing them. Jesus needs to have patience with his disciples, and he goes on choosing them. Jesus needs to display incredible kindness to his disciples, and he goes on choosing them. Love is a choice, and Jesus has chosen to love these disciples. What's that going to mean for us? If we're going to love as Jesus has loved us, that means we've got to go on choosing one another choosing relationship with one another. And we're going to have to choose relationship with one another. And I know some of you are new here and you're like, hey, hang on, I just chose to come here on Sunday morning and, you know, I don't know anyone here, fine. But if you stay, if you become part of not just this gathering, but this community, there'll be moments where you'll have to choose relationship with one another, with other people, even when they let you down. There'll be moments when people don't meet up to your expectations. There'll be moments where you feel shut out, you feel left alone, you feel cast aside. And you've got a choice in that moment, right? Whether to press in or to step out. And there'll be in those moments, if we're going to love one another, we need to choose to step in. We will let you down. Amen, I will let you down. Guarantee it. We probably already have, most of you. We will let you down. We are not perfect people. We're not perfect leaders. This team is full of imperfect people. This room is full of imperfect people. You're awesome, by the way. But you're imperfect. I'm sorry if that's news. (laughs) We'll do some counselling later. We need to choose and go on choosing. We need to choose to see the best in one another. Even when the evidence doesn't seem to suggest that the best is always there. Jesus is saying to to, to love as he's loved us is to go on choosing. Jesus says that to love as he's loved us is to befriend one another. Verse 14, he says, You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Jesus befriends his disciples. So what Jesus, when he chooses them, what he's not doing is inviting them into like a curriculum and like an experience of discipleship where you can come on this course and you can go to this conference and actually if you go and sit through this teaching class, you'll have reached the third stage of discipleship and it will be fantastic. You'll be fully, um, fully qualified to go and disciple other people. That's not what Jesus is doing. This is not a class. You don't have to sit exams, kids. Oy, amazing. In Jesus' class of discipleship, no oral exams, no written exams. 
Woo! Because what Jesus is inviting you into is a friendship. That's it. He befriends his disciples. And that means that he just wanders around the Middle East, Palestine, particularly Galilee. He just wanders around and hangs out with them. It's a lot easier, folks, than school. It's amazing. It's a friendship. It's intimate. You're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Listen to this. A servant doesn't know his master's business. How many of us behave towards Jesus as if that's who we are? We're servants and we're not supposed to know his business. But no, Jesus has said, no, you're going to know my business. You're going to walk with me. You're going to be covered in the dust that I kick up when I walk around. You're going to see me at my you're going to see me cry. You're going to see me laugh. You're going to see me weep. You're going to see me broken. You're going to see everything. It's going to be an intimate relationship. I've called you friends, Jesus says. It's not superficial. It's intimate. Now, How often do we embody this? How easy is it for us to behave as if the church is just a superficial gathering and we, and we stay on the surface. We don't go beyond surface level relationships. But if we're going to love as he's loved us, we've got to invite each other into our lives. A frightening concept. You know, the church is not uh, sitting next to someone weekly while you go on your own private spiritual adventure. Church is a community of people, shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm, walking towards Jesus, hand in hand. No, I've got shoulder to shoulder and arm to arm, that'll do. <laughs> Can't pile on these connection metaphors, Johnny. We've only got arms and shoulders and, up, and hands now. Going towards God on a shared mission, and the mission is, is to walk into the love that he has for us and to share it with others. We can only do it together. I found a quote which I think describes this uh, by a guy called John Tyson, who's a pastor. Uh, just next one, there we go. We live, just back one if you would. We live in a relational moment where the needs of the individual have completely eclipsed the concerns of a larger community. Next slide. The choice, uh, nice phrase, the choice architecture of our entire lives exists to facilitate individualism. Think of an iPhone. And rather than articulating an alternative vision, the church has embraced this value. We speak primarily of a personal relationship with God as the fundamental goal of faith. There is nothing wrong with personal faith, but the love that Jesus speaks of is fundamentally other-oriented and generally communal. If the goal of church is self, we will not fulfill Jesus' command that we will be known as people of love. Guys, the goal here is not the self. The goal here is not even our own spiritual growth. M. Scott Peck wrote a book um, called The Road Less Traveled. It's one of the best, best books I've read outside the Bible. And he defines love as um, basically giving yourself up for the spiritual growth of another. So the goal here is not even just that you become more like Jesus. The goal is that the person next to you and the person on the other side become more like Jesus too. 
And we can only do that together. Jesus befriends his disciples. What does it mean to befriend? It means to share life. There was this occasion um, when, uh, just a couple of years ago now, our, our twins, we got twins, uh, they're now two, or the two this week, and, and when one of them was just a few weeks old, she got really, really ill. I was actually away in America that week, and I flew back, and um, we, went, we ended up in hospital that Friday night, and, and the problem was that she got more and more dehydrated. And for a little baby, that's a really serious issue. She got dehydrated because of another issue, which is very simple, but the real problem is dehydration. And we ended up getting wheeled in. Um, while Amy took her to the hospital, while I was looking after the other kids, somebody came over and we just got, I got to hospital as quickly as possible. And we ended up in, in uh, the resource room and they were very quickly trying to jab a needle so they could get a line into Eden's arm. And it became apparent to us in that moment that what was happening was actually very, very serious. It was a simple problem. She was dehydrated, but the, the ramifications of it were very serious. And they were desperately, desperately trying to get this, this line in to, so he could pump fluids into her body, her little body. And she was looking awful, absolutely awful. Thankfully, they got the line in and, and she just began to revive. It was a very, very serious time for us. And we were in hospital for a little while after that with her. She needed an operation and thank God she recovered. In that moment, though, we understood what the church was about People gathered around us. We had people visiting us. We had people cooking meals for us. And we had people praying for us when she was sick. We knew there were people the other side of the world uh, standing in their front room just praying for us. You know, people, we, we had letters and notes. We felt so supported. We, we'd been, we became aware we'd been befriended. That's our vision, that we'd love each other like that, just as Jesus loved us. And finally... Church that wants to love like Jesus is a church that lays down its life for one another. Greater love, verse 13. You notice I've gone backwards. Greater love hath no man than this, no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. This is what Jesus has done for us. He's laid down his life for us. Jesus laid down his privilege for us. Jesus could have hung out with the Father side by side in heaven for all eternity. He wouldn't have lacked a single thing. But in choosing to invest himself, choosing to become part of the human story, Jesus already already lays down his life. And yet we know what the disciples didn't know at this point, that Jesus' commitment to laying down his life goes beyond just coming to become one of us. He dies on behalf of each one of us on behalf of these disciples. I heard a story which illustrated this a few years ago, and it's a story of a, a Catholic priest called Maximilian Kolbe. No, many of you will know that name, I'm sure. But he was a priest during the Second World War, and he provided shelter to refugees from Greater Poland, including 2,000 Jews who he hid from Nazi persecution in his friary. Now, Kolbe was arrested and he was taken uh, to a concentration camp. He was later moved to Auschwitz. And there was a moment uh, during, actually during 1941, I think it was, where, um, and this is what we read, in the summer of 1941, most probably on the last day of July, the camp siren announced that there, this is a um, first-hand testimony, that there had been an escape. During the evening roll call, it was found that three prisoners from this commander from this camp had escaped, one from our block and, and two others from the other blocks. 
Now, Lagerführer, which I imagine is a German word, which means commander or something similar. Fritsch announced that on account of the escape of the three prisoners, ten prisoners would be picked in reprisal from the blocks in which the fugitives have lived and would be assigned to the bunker, which was in the underground starvation cell. What, was, what happened next was incredible. One of the men chosen was a guy called Francis Gajanizjak. When the sentence of doom had been pronounced, had cried out in despair, oh, my poor wife, my poor children, I shall never see them again. And then this is what happened next. After the group of doomed men had already been selected, a prisoner stepped out from the ranks of one of the blocks. First, uh, the man says, I recognize Father Colbert. It could be inferred from the expression on Fritch's face that he was surprised at Father Colby's action. As the sign was given, Father Colby joined the ranks of the doomed and the non-commissioned officer left the ranks of the doomed. Fritch had consented to the exchange. A little later, the doomed men were marching off in the direction of Block 13, the death block. What had happened, of course, it was, it was Father Colby had taken the place of another man who was condemned to die. What followed was equally amazing. Having taken the place of the prisoner, Maximilian Kolbe led the other nine prisoners in prayer and worship every day. Two whole weeks of starvation later, only Kolbe and four others were alive, and only Kolbe was conscious. The Nazis injected him with a lethal injection of phenol, and he died. One witness of the death bunker in that time said, I had the impression I was in a church. Prayer and worship, a man giving his life for another man. This is a staggering example of the church. It's an, it's a, yes, it's an out there, huge, once in a generation example of what the love of Jesus looks like when people get hold of it. Maximilian Kolbe is an amazing man. Now the chances are that's not what our lives will look like. We never know exactly where we're headed, but the chances are that's not where we're headed. But the decision that he made to lay down himself for others has to be a part of what it means to love one another because that's how Jesus' love does. And I wonder today whether we'd be willing to lay down our preferences, whether we could even commit, covenant together, agree together that we'd be willing to lay down our preferences for how church should be, for how the worship is, for how the temperature of the coffee, whatever, the the peripheral stuff, the superficial stuff, and maybe even the more substantial stuff, our deepest desires. Would we be willing to lay those down for one another as well? Would we be willing to lay down our freedoms, our ambitions, our time and our money? Because if we're going to love one another as Jesus has loved us, That's what it's going to look like. And we want that foundation, above all, to be in our church. So what? Church, let us love one another as he has loved us. Why don't we stand? We're just going to close our service together uh, just by asking him to reveal his love to us. So simple. I just wonder if you'd uh, open your hands we're going to do this as sort of part of um, blessing, but we do just want to have a, a few moments before we uh, need to go on just to invite the presence of God to come and do what only he can do. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you now. 
we just recognise, even in this moment, that we are totally powerless. We cannot make ourselves more loving. We can't make ourselves more like Jesus, more invested and interested in others. And, and we're also aware that the power, the, the power of the, our culture is huge and is shaping us all the time towards self-interest. Holy Spirit, you are an unstoppable force.